Good job, everyone, on uh, working on the on the new song. I know it's uh, a little bit different from a lot of the ones that we typically do, but it's good for us to stretch ourselves, and so I think we just need to make a few adjustments to that last slide, and then we'll be all on the same page. So, All right. Return to the Lord. What does that mean? This word or phrase is a favorite of Hosea's. He used it in chapter 3 to describe the future of Israel. They will return to the Lord. He uses it in the beginning of our section today, chapter 6 and verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He'll use it again in Hosea 12, verse 6 to say, return to your God. And finally, in Hosea 14, verse 1, to say, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. In his final summary, both of the sin of the people and God's willingness to forgive the repentant and the humble. So today we're going to look at Hosea 6 and 7, and I want us to figure out what the answer to this question, what does repentance look like? Why was it necessary? I think Hosea's point in these two chapters is to repent humbly and immediately. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Hosea acknowledges God's discipline on his people. He has torn us, he has wounded us, But if they repent, he will heal us, he will bandage us, he will revive us, he will raise us up, that we may live. These words, I think, foreshadow the crucifixion in which God wounded his son for our sins and transgressions and then restored him through the resurrection. Yet in this context, they are applied to rebellious Israel if they would repent. Hosea concludes his hopeful call to repentance in verses 1 through through 3 by saying, Let us know the Lord. Their rejection of God was the root of the problem. So returning to the Lord demanded knowing Him again as their God and them being His people. If they would only do this, God would forgive because He is faithful. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and His faithfulness was illustrated by the spring rains that we've seen even in our own homes the last week or two. You know when they're going to come, They are predictable, they are necessary, they are a blessing. And this is the blessing that God would bring to his people if they would repent. Hosea then turns in the second part of chapter 6 and 7 to the sobering reasons for why repentance is necessary immediately and why it must be done with an attitude of humility. The first thing we see is from chapter 6, verses 4 through 11. Repent because God wants you, not what you can give. Why is this the case? Well, first of all, because what you give to God on your own is worthless. Look at verse 4. He says, Your loyalty, Ephraim, Judah, is like a morning cloud and the dew which goes away early. Ever seen fog in the mornings? How long does it last? A couple hours usually. The dew, as soon as the sun comes out, warms up the grass, the dew is gone. He says, Ephraim and Judah, your loyalty is like that. It's there briefly and then it's gone again. They made promises, but then they broke them. We saw this in Hosea 1, verse 2. The land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2. Contend with your mother, contend. She is not my wife, I am not her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her face. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 5. Their mother has played the harlot. She has said, I will go after my lover, symbolic of the nations that Israel kept going after. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. This 
unfaithfulness, infidelity, lack of keeping their promises is confirmation of God's case against his people. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness. The people were rebuked and then later misled by prophets. Verse 5, God sends them his word and then God allows unfaithful prophets to mislead them. Chapter 6, verse 5, we also saw this in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, you'll stumble by day and the prophet will stumble with you by night. At first the prophets proclaimed God's word and then later on many of the prophets led the people further into their destruction and God used this as a judgment, as a reproof on his people. God wants loyalty and not sacrifice, verse 6. Relationship, not religious rituals. This is so important because I think there are a variety of churches where different things are struggles. I think in a church like ours that's had a lot of good preaching down through the years, you know a lot of things about the Bible, the struggle is less about is it okay for me to do all of these various sins, because you know you, that you shouldn't, I think it's easy for our hearts to grow cold and for us to say, I am doing all the things that are expected of me as people watch, and so God is pleased. And the problem for the people of Israel was, even in the midst of their sin, they kept going through all the religious rituals. Obviously, the northern kingdom of Israel was doing it in the wrong place, in the wrong way, with the wrong priest. But even the southern kingdom, they were going to Jerusalem. They had the priest appointed by God. They were doing the sacrifices, and then during the week or after they went and offered their sacrifice to God, they'd go up on the mountain to the grove, to the pagan altar, and they'd offer sacrifices there too. So it wasn't that they stopped following God. It's that they added all of these sinful things to it and thought because they kept doing the things that God required, God was going to ignore the rest of the stuff during the course of the week. There's an interesting parallel between this passage and 1 Samuel chapter 15. You're familiar with the story of Saul. You don't necessarily have to turn there if you don't want to. But Saul was commanded to kill all of the people who are God's enemies, get rid of all of the livestock. And Saul said, you know what? Let's keep the king alive. Let's spare the best of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. What were God's words through Samuel? Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, pagan foretelling of the future by magic arts. Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. Here in Hosea, I delight in loyalty, obedience, rather than sacrifice. Those two are very parallel concepts. God was loyal to his people and wanted his people to be loyal to him through obedience. And they said, we don't have to be loyal to you. We can go worship other gods as long as we keep offering you sacrifices. God said, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to wholeheartedly worship me and me alone. God wanted a relationship, not a religious ritual. Again, we can sort of go through the motions. I read my Bible. I prayed. I read a Christian book. I listened to a sermon. I didn't do any really notable sins this week. But if we don't have a living relationship with God, what's the point of all those other things? The point of those things is to build our relationship with God. They are not an end in themselves. Why do you read your Bible? Not so you can say, I read my Bible. You read your Bible so you know the God who's in the Bible. Why do you pray? 
Not so you can get stuff from God, so that you can have an ongoing relationship from God. And getting stuff from Him is sort of a benefit or a side point. But, I mean, to illustrate it in a way that I think we can all relate to, if you have a friend who's always coming and saying, hey, give me 20 bucks, give me 50 bucks, give me 100 bucks, there's not really a relationship there. There's sort of a dependency, right? If we go to God and we're like, give me stuff, give me stuff, give me stuff, but we don't really care to know what God cares about or what God is like or any of those sorts of things, we don't really have a relationship. We're just sort of going through a ritual because we want something out of it, which is a pagan way to look at worship, right? If we dance around, get the God's attention, he'll give us what we want, then we can go back to doing what we feel like. We see that in worship of Baal and a whole bunch of other things. God's people broke the covenant and dealt treacherously with God. We see this in verse 7. Like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. God said, I want you to not eat of the tree. You will belong to me. You'll have essentially eternal life. And Adam said, nope, I'm going to do that anyway. Adam breaks the covenant. God's people similarly here have dealt treacherously with God. God said, I've made a covenant with you. You're my people. I'm your God. They said, yep, but we're also going to worship these other gods. Sometimes we don't want to be your people. That's treachery. That's disloyalty. That's disobedience. We saw this in chapter 5, verse 7. They've dealt treacherously against the Lord. And chapter 5, verse 13, instead of turning back to God, they went down to Assyria and to Egypt and said, hey, you help us out. God said, I'm the one who can heal you. Turn to me. In summary of all these ideas here, I think there's a parallel passage in Isaiah 64, verse 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's worthless. Romans 3 says what we need is not a righteousness by the law that we can't keep or by our own efforts that fall short, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the work that he has done in our place. And so what God's people needed in Hosea's day was they needed loyalty and a relationship with God, but they ultimately didn't have the capacity to do that on their own, which goes back to the point I was making. God doesn't want what you can bring him because what you will bring him ends up being worthless because you don't have the capacity to bring him what he requires. What you need is a relationship with God so he can give you what he wants you to bring him and then you can bring it to him. Which, at one level, sounds... Strange, but I mean, think about a kid buying dad or mom a birthday present. Whose money do they use? How do they get to the store? Essentially, that's what we're doing with God. We're using the riches of God to bring the offerings to God that he is the provider for and the giver of in the first place. And then we give him thanksgiving and we say, well, that seems strange. Don't, doesn't he want me to come up with something on my own? No, because you can't. No, because it's, not, it's no good. Bring back to God what he has given to you to bring to him. Don't try to come up with it on your own. Not only is what we bring to God on our own worthless, but it's also wicked. We see this in 8 through 11. What did they give to God? Wrongdoing and bloodshed. We see this in verse 8. There is a little bit of a parallel possibly in 2 Kings chapter 15. Verse 25, where it says, um, Pekah, son of Ramalia, his officer, conspired against him and struck, in some, struck him in Samaria, in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Area, and with him were 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and became king in his place. 
So one of the kings of Israel is overthrown by a band of Gileadites who come in to assassinate the king. Perhaps there's a further association in other places, but uh, that was one of the ones that I saw there. In Hosea's own book, chapter 4, verse 2, they're swearing deception and murder. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. A little bit later in the book, Hosea 12, verse 14, Hosea says, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. You say, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a wrongdoer. I'm not a murderer. Jesus' words in Matthew 5 should be convicting because he says that those who harbor hatred in their heart against their brother are on the path to murder and are sinning in God's sight even if nobody else can see what's in our hearts. 1 John 3 says it this way, in verses 15 through 17, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. So that's pretty straightforward. If we hate those God has put around us, we're not all that much different from Cain. We might not have stabbed or clubbed him to death with a rock or whatever Cain did. We might not have shot somebody. We might not have killed somebody in the physical act. But there's moments when we've had murder in our hearts toward people around us for various reasons. So what we give to God on our own is wicked. Secondly, like the fools of Proverbs, the priests gave God acts of murder on their way to worship. A band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. This is one of the notable places in the Old Testament. It had been a place of worship during the time of the... uh, the leaders before the kings, the judges. We're on our way to offer sacrifices. Let's kill this guy in the way. Like those, uh, like raiders wait for a man. This was premeditated. This was murder. This was wrongdoing. There's a lot of parallels with this in Proverbs. The scoffers and the fools lie in wait to do evil. Is it possible for us on our way to gather with God's people to speak or act toward one another in ways that show the same kind of hypocrisy. We're having a fight. We get to church. Everything's good. And you say, well, that's not as big of a deal as murdering someone on your way to the worship. Well, no, but it's a step in the process. We've been guilty of this before. Thinking we don't have time to deal with this sin or it's more important that we do this, that, or the other thing instead of deal with the problem. What did Jesus say about worship? You got something between you and your brother, go deal with it. I don't want you to come. I don't want you to come and lead music, preach, sing praise, give in the offering, do the exercise of your spiritual gifts. I don't want that if you've got something you need to deal with with someone else. Go take care of that first. Now, can we probably, in a lot of cases, plan ahead so it's not a question of being at church or dealing with the thing? Yes. But sometimes there's moments when you just have to say, you know what, we're going to deal with the thing. 
I am not indispensable to the work that God is doing in this church. Someone else can step in today. And if it's embarrassing to say, here's why, it's not bad for us to be ashamed of our sin and to ask for help and work through it. That applies to me. That applies to anybody else. What else did the Israelites give to God that was wicked? They gave him wrongdoing and bloodshed. They gave him hypocrisy and further bloodshed. They gave God defilement and harlotry. Verse 10. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. You go to the king's house. You go into the houses of the people. They're supposed to be worshiping God and they're setting up shrines to other gods. They're supposed to be faithful to God and faithful to one another. And they're committing immorality and adultery and all these other sorts of sins. There's a parallel here, I think, with uh, Ephesians 5. I was just looking at this passage this week with the 8th graders that I teach. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6 says this, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There was a one of these TV preachers somewhere down in Florida or down that way um, left his wife, ran off with someone in the church, started a new church because he got kicked out of the first one or resigned before they could kick him out. I don't know exactly what happened. It's been a while since I read the information. Um, Starts a new church. What message does he preach? God's kind of okay with your sin because we're all sinners. We all fall short and it's all forgiven in Jesus. There is an element of truth in that, in that God has forgiven our sin. But you know what the thing Paul says right after in the book of Romans? Don't sin more so God can show you more grace, because if you really and truly have a relationship with God, you can't go back to the old way of life, because God has freed you from it and delivered you from it. You're not enslaved to it anymore. You're supposed to walk in the path of righteousness. So, yes, has God forgiven your sin? Absolutely. If you trust in Jesus, your sins are dealt with. That is not an excuse to keep sinning and going your own way. And then act like that's the message of the gospel to say, well, God's okay with your sin. Just keep living the way you've been living. God doesn't expect us to clean up our lives on our own because we can't. But he does expect to transform our lives by his power once we've begun to follow him because he can And God called us to walk in good works. God called us to be changed into the image of Jesus. God doesn't save us so we can sit there in the muck and mire of sin and be exactly how we were before. God saves us so they can transform our lives. And so if we twist the gospel and excuse our sin, we are rejecting the message of of what God has said. Verse 11 is difficult says the people of Judah will also reap a harvest. If the parallel is something like what we see in chapter 4, verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. And what we see in chapter 9, verse 2, threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. There's imagery of harvest associated with God's judgment. Like, you are depending on these things in the harvest, I'm going to take them away. But there's also places where harvest is associated with God's blessing in this book and others. And so because of the seemingly positive turn, when I restore the fortunes of my people, I think this is a hopeful verse at the end of a number of very discouraging verses. And so God is saying, there is going to be blessing when I restore my people. Despite your sin, I'm going to eventually bring you to repentance. Why should we repent? 
We should repent because God wants us, not what we can bring him, because apart from his work, it's worthless and wicked. When we believe in him, he gives us valuable and holy gifts to offer back to him. But there are more reasons why humble and immediate repentance is necessary. Secondly, we should repent because sin blinds you to how it destroys you. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. The first thing is that sin lets you pretend God doesn't see. God desired to heal Israel, verse 1, I, when I would heal Israel. But then their wickedness spilled out. The iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered and the evil deeds of Samaria. God wanted to deliver them, but thieves and bandits plundered instead. We see this in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, the second part of it. Verse 2, I think, is the main part where I'm drawing this idea of sin blinds you, the fact that God sees. God saw all that they did. Verse 2, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. The lie of sin and temptation is that God doesn't see. We talked about Jonah 1 in Sunday school hour. Jonah had to believe a lie for at least a little bit to think that getting on a ship and sailing the opposite direction of where God told him to go was going to work. Because he knew that God made everything. He says so to the sailors. He knew that God is everywhere. He's the God who made heavens and earth. So if God sees everything and controls everything, why do we think that we could escape him? Because we've believed the lie that temptation has offered us that God doesn't see. This is what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. God hasn't told you everything, and maybe you can hide from God. So what do Adam and Eve do? They try to cover up their nakedness that's been revealed to them by sin. Did it work? No. God said, hey, why are you doing that? We were afraid, and all those sorts of things. The only way that we can sin and justify it, one of the only ways, I should say, is when we forget that God sees everything. This is an important truth with regard to dealing with temptation because sometimes we think that the entirety of the solution to temptation is to always have someone checking on us. And that can be extremely important. If somebody is going to bluntly and honestly come to you and say, hey, are you lusting? Hey, are you hateful? Hey, are you lazy? Hey, are you angry? We need that degree of accountability from others in the body of Christ. But the reality is, there's going to be moments when you're all by yourself. And you're going to have to say, do I care that God sees what I'm doing, even if nobody else sees or knows or ever finds out? Temptation lies that God doesn't see. Why was God forgotten ultimately? Verse 4. God was forgotten because they cared, or verse 3 and 4, with their wickedness they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. Why did they stop caring about what God thought? Because there were enough people who came along and said, hey, this is great. You're doing the thing that we want. We get to do what we want. Everything is good. And they listened to the voice of the people around them, encouraging them on toward evil, which we saw in Hosea 4 and 5, from the priests and the kings and so forth. God was forgotten because they cared about what people thought instead. So they committed lies and adultery to please wicked rulers and wicked priests. Not only does sin let you pretend that God doesn't see, but sin destroys you from the inside out. Look at verses 5 through 9. 
God uses the image of bread forgotten by the baker. Uh, end, of chap- end of verse 4 and then down through 9. Like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Do you need a hot oven for successful baking? Yes. But then we see the imagery continuing. Their hearts are like an oven. Their anger smolders. It burns like a flaming fire. Do you want an oven that's too hot for baking bread? No. Verse 8, Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Do you sometimes have to take something out and flip it over or adjust what's going on in the container? Yes. So at first, they're not attending the fire. Then they let the fire get too hot. Then they forget about the bread that's baking and just leave it to burn on one side and be raw on the other. What's the sort of practical? So that's the picture, the imagery, but what's the practical reality? The princes are passed out drunk, partying with scoffers and fools. Verse 5. They're sick with the heat of wine. He stretches out his hand with scoffers. They're supposed to be leading the people, teaching them about God, pointing them to who God is, and protecting the people, and they're getting drunk and passed out and partying with fools. The rising heat of the oven pictures their schemes and anger that spills out into murdering and overthrowing their own leaders, verses 6 and 7. They're plotting their anger. It burns. They consume their rulers. Their kings have fallen. What should they have been doing in these circumstances? They should turn back to God and call on him, the one who could heal and forgive. But verse 7, the last phrase, none of them calls on me. They go to the nations for help. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. What's the end result? Verse 9, strangers devour and old age takes them by surprise. But they don't see it coming or recognize the warning signs. There are places in the Bible where the idea of aging is exalted. Gray heirs are honorable and lots of children and grandchildren, all those sorts of things. So he's not saying that aging is associated with wickedness. But he's saying, let's say that there's somebody who thinks that he's 20 and can do whatever he wants. And then all of a sudden his eyes are open, he looks in the mirror and he realizes he's 80, 90, 100 and has no strength and his life is almost at an end. That's sort of the imagery that we have here in this. This idea of strangers devouring his strength, perhaps associated with some of the things in Proverbs where it talks about the end result of immorality, but the reality is all sorts of sins lead to destruction and things being taken away from us as a consequence of our sin. So why should we repent? We should repent because God wants all of who we are, not just what we can bring to him, because what we can bring to him is worthless on its own. Why should we repent? Because sin blinds us to truth about God and the destruction and havoc that the consequences of those sins are bringing into our lives. Hosea gives another reason, though. Repent because pride leads to stupidly resisting God. You see this from verse 10 down through the end of the chapter. Pride leads you to a kind of insanity. When I say a kind of insanity, I don't mean that we get off the hook and say, well, I was crazy, and so I did it, and so I shouldn't have any consequences. I mean the sort of insanity that says your pride is condemning you, but you think boasting is a sign of strength. Your pride is your undoing, but you keep pursuing it anyway. Your pride creates a barrier to turning to God, but he's the only one who can help. That's the sort of insanity I'm talking about. The madness, the foolishness, the wickedness that rejects the only true source of help and continues to boast in your strength that's fading and failing you. 
pride furthermore leads you to destruction. There's a lot of parallels uh, between Hosea, Romans 1, and Ephesians 4. So Hosea 9, verse 10, Though the pride of Israel testifies against them, they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become without sense like a silly dove. Romans 1.18 says, You reject the reality of truths about God, and it throws you into a downward spiral. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17 and 19 says, This is the way the Gentiles walked in the futility of their minds and abandoned themselves to the exercise of lust. Your thinking is corrupted. You come up with stupid explanations for why the world is. A big bang, a big explosion happened. Why? How do you know? I just think it. Why? Because you don't want to acknowledge that God made the world. You start believing random contradictory ideas. I believe in survival of the fittest because evolution, but don't take my stuff because it's mine. Survival of the fittest says, if I can come take your stuff, I, I get to, and too bad for you. But we don't like that because we want to borrow ideas from Christianity. We believe things that are contradictory. And we start ignoring basic reality. Be whatever you want to be. You want to be a frog? Be a frog. You want to be a dog? Be a dog. You say nobody acts that way. There was a story that was in the news, I don't know, three weeks ago. A guy bought a costume to pretend to be a collie every couple of weekends and spent like $12,000 on it. That is the natural outcome of rejecting the reality that God exists. You start to believe things that are contradictory and you end up in futility of thought and worthless ideas and just complete and utter nonsense. And it doesn't just affect your thinking, but it affects the way you live. Perverse practices that start with living in disobedience to your parents and hating your neighbor and descends all the way down to things like bestiality and other despicable sexual sins, serial murderer kind of behavior, and all of these sorts of things. Like, that's the logical end. People are like, that's the slippery slope argument. No, the Bible says this is what happens. Romans 1, Ephesians 4, Hosea 7. So what are the people doing? They're running to their, their enemies for help. That's like going to, to the bully at school and saying, hey, will you protect me from people who are beating me up? I'm not saying bullying is okay. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that would be a completely stupid thing to do. God brings them down like birds in a net to chastise them for their sin. We're going to see this imagery in chapter 8, verse 1, like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 8, the snare of a bird catcher is in all his, Ephraim's, ways. Uh, chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, they will come trembling like birds from Egypt and doves from the land of Assyria. So this imagery of birds caught in a net, birds brought down by a hunter, is a sign of God's chastisement for their sin. And verses 13 to 16 make it clear that they can't see it's all their own fault. They strayed, verse 13. They rebelled, verse 13. They lied about God, verse 13. And they blamed him. Verse 14, they failed to repent. They don't cry to me from their heart. They don't call to God when they mourn about their difficulties. They wail on their beds. There are moments where we just say, life is miserable, and why is this way, and I don't want it to be this way. And the reason it's that way is because we've sinned against God, but we won't repent. 
They took the training God gave and tried to attack him. It's like, let's say you went and trained with someone in the martial arts, then you tried to go kick him in the face. Look at verse 15. I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn but not upward. They're like a deceitful bow, one that you can't trust, one that won't shoot straight. What's the end result? God brings them down. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. We may well be following God this morning. But when we sin, which is a lot more often than we want to admit, why don't we want to repent? Two of the big reasons are because we're proud and we don't see that time is short to deal with it. We think in pride, everybody else got caught, but I won't. We think in, in sort of a foolish disregard for the urgency of it, I have all the time in the world. Hosea reminds the people that God's compassionate, but he demands obedience. He will graciously forgive, but you have to ask. And this is the hard truth. He will ruin your life, humanly speaking, to gain your soul. We say, how could, how could that be? Well, if the alternatives are between you having a successful human life and being damned to hell, or God making your life miserable until you repent, which one do you actually want from him? How long will we love sin? What will God have to take from us before we're ready to repent? Why do we keep running from God, who's the only one who can help? If you, apart from a relationship with God, are trying to bring things to him, God basically says, you know what? I don't want worthless offerings of self-righteousness and external compliance with a sinful heart. I don't want it. I don't need it. I have nothing to do with it. You want to bring things to me? Come, trust in me through Jesus. I will give you things that I want you to bring back. Romans 12, the entirety of your person as a living sacrifice, as a priest, holy and dedicated to God, proving what God's perfect will is in obedience. But the only way that happens is if we start by trusting in Jesus, turning away from our sin, and submitting to God's purpose for our lives. God wants us to see how sin blinds us to reality. If you ignore the truth that you know about God, you just get into this downward spiral and sin eats you from the inside out like a worm eating an apple. God wants you to see how stupid it is to exalt yourself and go your own way. If pride keeps us from turning to God in repentance, it leads us to destruction as we saw last week. And the one person who can help us, God himself, we won't go to him. Hosea calls us in these chapters, first to Israel, but I think by application to us, to turn to God. Repent. Humble yourself and stop trying to fix your problems on your own. God has solutions to every problem that we face in life. It may not be easy, it may not be fun, but God has answers to all the problems that we face in life. But the biggest problem is, do we or don't we have a relationship with him? Because if we want God to fix the fact that we want money or we want harmony in our marriage or we want our kids to obey or all those sorts of things, those are often good results of having a relationship with God, 
but they are not the reason to go to God. The reason to go to God is because he's the only one that we should be, have a relationship with. And if, if we're just trying to get things from him, we're not going to come to him in the right way. We're not going to truly know and follow him. And the thing that we see at the end of verse chapter 6, verse 11, and as we continue through the book of Hosea, is that there is hope for us if we humbly and promptly repent. But there is heartache for us if we proudly and stubbornly resist. And I know that this is not an especially cheerful message. I mean, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6 is encouraging and hopeful, and the whole rest of it is just this indictment of Israel's sin that should prompt us to consider the parallels to our own lives. But sometimes we need to stop and ponder, how am I going my own way? What am I trying to bring to God of my own efforts? What pride is leading me away from God? Until we can get to that moment, where we have a true and deepening relationship with God. Because that's God's goal. God's not putting through them through all this difficulty, the people of Israel, to make them miserable. He's putting them through all the difficulty because they're already miserable and he wants to deliver them from it. God wants to do the same for you and I. Come, let us return to the Lord he has torn us, he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. It's what he did with his son to make this possible in our lives. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. This is eternal life that you know the one true God, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He rides out in revelation on the white horse to rule the earth. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. God's word goes forth, accomplishes what it's supposed to do, and comes back. There's all of these themes all throughout scripture. God in this passage through Hosea calls people to humble themselves, to repent, and to do it right now. Let's pray. Father, these are hard truths to look at, hard truths to acknowledge. If we're following you in this moment, then Lord, we praise you for your work that you've done in our lives. I think if we're honest, most of us, most of the time, have some kind of sin that we're dealing with. And a passage like this calls us to say, we've got to deal with it now and not put it off and not come up with our own solutions and not say we've got it under control and not say we'll deal with it later. Sin is deadly. Sin separates us from you. Sin was the reason Jesus had to die. And yet because he's died, we can be freed from sin. Because he humbled himself, you can crush our pride and humble us as well and make us yours. Because of the resurrection, we can have hope of eternal life.
Help us not to be blinded by the lies of this world, of sometimes our own hearts, of false teaching around us that would cause us to remain in sin, stubbornly turn away from you, and go down the path to destruction. Open our eyes. Help us to love you more than all these things that are around us in this world. Help us to humbly submit to the one and only way that you have opened to us for forgiveness and for help. Amen.